The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So I'm about 99% sure that there's a swimming pool across the street here on Noble Road. I've never actually seen it because there's a high red brick wall around it. But I've heard lots of splashing water and lots of cheering and excitement. And I've seen children and parents walk to and from it wearing swimwear. So I feel very confident that there's a swimming pool across the street. Now, in order to get into the swimming pool and to enjoy it, it has certain regulations that every community has. For example, imagine in the afternoon they have open swim time for children. Therefore, children can come in and swim there. But if a middle-aged man comes up and says, I'm not a member and I'm not a parent, but I just think I should be able to come in there, they would say no. And they would explain that they have built a red brick wall for this exact purpose. (laughs) Now, if you're in there at that moment, even if you are one of the children, but you decide to try to drown another child, you'll be warned. And perhaps there will be a gate that will be opened to escort you out. Or in fact, if you do something that would be harmful even to just yourself, you decide to sprint and run around the pool even though it's wet and it's concrete. Again, that gate exists so it can open and let you out. Now in today's passage, though of course it's not exactly analogous to the analogy I just gave, Jesus is actually teaching something rather similar in Matthew 18. Verses 1 through 9, which we looked at last Sunday, Jesus explains how to even enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, his disciples have asked, who's the greatest? Jesus says, unless you humble yourself and become like one of these children through dependent, simple faith, you will never even enter the kingdom. So it's first most important to know, how does one become a member of the kingdom of heaven? Now, let me press at this point. We're already very different from the swimming pool across the street. Because those, you pay a membership to gain entrance. But here Jesus has made the payment that gains entrance. And you simply receive it through humble childlike faith. But when you receive it, those who really do receive it are then protected within a boundary of beliefs and behaviors. But sometimes there are some who say that they have come to Christ in humble, childlike faith. But over time, that claim becomes spurious, becomes unclear. In today's text, we'll see in Matthew 18, 10 through 20, how Jesus provides protection for those who actually are his. How he provides boundaries to preserve those who are his. And the relational center that he uses to keep those who are his in his care. Now already, you might have an objection bubbling up within you. How dare there be any sort of exclusion that would keep anyone away? That seems wrong. Even the idea of discipline or correction or even restorative correction seems difficult to hear. Let me give two reasons why I think that is. First, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been in church for a while, no doubt you have seen or know of a church somewhere that has handled church discipline very, very poorly. They've handled it in a condemning, unfair, uh, ungracious sort of a way. And we should criticize claimed Christians or ostensible churches 
when they do not do what Christ has said the way Christ wants it done. But I think there's another reason, to be honest, that we struggle with a passage like the one we're going to look at today. We live in a cultural moment where we hear things like love, inclusion, open, and tolerance. And I think we're not totally clear what those things mean. We're often told that Christians are by definition intolerant, unloving, and that they're not very open. And we're often told that the world is tolerant and inclusive and receptive of all people. Let's think about that claim for just a minute. This week I was reading about the Climate Change Committee in the UK. And as I kept reading, they were talking about how they're an open, inclusive environment for all of their board members. But do you know what happens if you're a board member on that committee and you say you no longer believe in climate change? You're kicked off the committee. Or maybe you've lived in a neighborhood that talks about we're a welcoming neighborhood for all people. But then you have to join an HOA. (laughs) And then what happens if you don't quite carry out on your lawn what you were supposed to carry out? Have you seen schools that present themselves as an open-minded learning environment, but they can disenroll you if you don't do what they wanted you to do, or they can suspend you or give you detention or, in fact, expel you from the school. Or sport teams even have been recently marketing themselves as a sport team for progress. But if you don't do what the coach wants, you'll get fined or benched. Or even at your job, many um, companies are actually marketing themselves right now as places of tolerance and acceptance. But if you don't fulfill what they want you to, you can be sure you will be corrected and potentially fired. Or even a book club that says, we're a book club for open-minded discussion will actually expel you from the book club if they think you're monopolizing the time too much. The reality is this. Every group functions with implicit beliefs, even if they're undefined or undeclared. And those beliefs act as boundaries by which the community will dismiss you because that's what makes a community a community. All communities have boundaries. So if we are to charge Christianity with being intolerant, well, let's pause for a second and think about this. Every community outside of Christianity, you only get to stay in the boundaries based on your performance, what you've achieved. Therefore, you're always insecure or anxious about your belonging in the community. Christianity actually is the only community in which you gain entrance by the payment of someone else. And you are preserved in the community by the grace that brought you in. That is why, if you have the bulletin today, the first point I've made is this one. The Christian community alone gives you a relational center that can never be lost. And that's the main point of verses 10 through 14. But secondly, verses 15 through 20, the Christian community purposes for meaningful relationships that balance grace and truth for your eternal good. What I'm arguing, at least right now, is that outside of Christianity, relationships are contractual. You stay in the relationship based on what you get. You give something, but you want to get something too. And if you don't get that something, you leave. But the relationship God has made for those whom he saves is actually covenantal. God doesn't get anything good. (laughs) And anything good that's at work in us is because of his gift in us. Therefore, it's actually Christianity alone that gives you a relational center that can never be lost. Let's see that now in verse 10. So verse 10, Jesus teaches, See to it 
that you do not despise one of these little ones. And whenever you're reading the Bible, you should look for the one command. This is the only command in verses 10 through 14. This command then governs everything else that follows. See to it that you do not despise any of these little ones. Jesus is concerned that those who claim to be his followers would despise other followers of him. You say, what do you mean other followers? Look at the phrase little ones. It's in verse 10 and verse 14. If you were here last week, you know what little ones refers to. It refers to those who come like a child would, like a little one, with that humble, dependent faith in Jesus. So little ones prefers to believers. So see to it that you never despise any other believer. Why not? Here's his first answer, the end of verse 10. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I love that Jesus begins with a very difficult thing to comprehend. (laughs) We should not despise any little one because of their angels. What does he mean here? And interpreters are all over the board. There's three main interpretations that people think are possible. Some people think Jesus is referring to guardian angels that every Christian has. Other people think he's referring to representative angels. And a third group think that he's just referring to angels, which can also be a word for spirits, meaning our bodies after we die. Let me talk about each of them for a second. If we all have a guardian angel, we would have to at least acknowledge that the biblical evidence is very minimal on that. But we we do have biblical evidence that angels minister to Christians. Here's Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand? Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So Hebrews does tell us that God does have angels ministering in some way to those who will inherit salvation. But it's more likely that they're representative rather than each one having a guardian angel because the Bible uses angels representatively in Daniel. Also because often when we think of guardian angels, we think of touched by an angel and we think of an angel who's protecting us maybe from a car accident. But notice that these angels are in front of the father's face. So it's much more likely that their presence reminds God of his child of whom he has love and commitment to. Now, um, whatever this means in the bottom line, we could argue over whether it means collective or representative. D.A. Carson and Warfield both argue that angels mean spirits, so it refers to our life after death, standing before God. Whatever it means, we know at least this. The reason first that Jesus says no Christian community should despise any other believer is because God cares for each believer a lot. So much so that there is some way in which we are always present before him, whether that be us after death or whether that be angels on our behalf. And now Jesus will tell a parable to help us better understand how he loves those who are his. And that begins in verse 12. First, the question is, what do you think? And it has an implied answer. No one would do this. So now the story continues. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Let me pause there. Some of you are thinking, this sounds familiar. It's because Jesus gives this story more than once. But we have to listen carefully because he does not give the story the same way. When he shares the story in Luke 15, it's because he's sitting with sinners and the Pharisees say, how dare you sit with sinners? And Jesus says, wouldn't you leave sheep and go after one that's lost? 
But here he's not talking about someone who's unsaved. He's not talking about someone who's lost because this is a passage about little ones and these sheep are not described as lost. They're described as strain. So these are believers, but believers who are wandering. So look now in verse 13. And if he finds that wandering believer, that sheep, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. This is God's celebration when he recovers one of his strange sheep, one of his wandering believers. Now you might think, why is he rejoicing more than over the 99 that stayed? That doesn't make any sense. Why would he be so happy about recovering the one that's lost rather than happy about the 99 who never left? Well, I think there's a couple answers. First, if you have multiple children and they've grown to be adults, perhaps you can relate a little bit to this text about how you feel about that one child who maybe was significantly difficult for a long, long time and really bucked against the right things and the things of God. But then there's this glorious moment where they return and there's this sense that the celebration is even greater than any of the grief that had previously been. But there's another reason too that I think is rather clear in the text. God is not celebrating at the expense of the 99. He's celebrating that the one has rejoined the 99 so all 100 can rejoice together. So it's a celebration because the whole flock is now again whole. So verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these, and don't miss the phrase again, little ones, one of these Christians, one of these believers should perish. Now notice again how I describe point number one. Christianity alone gives you a relational center that can never be lost. Every other community outside of Christianity, you can lose your place in it. In fact, have you seen how many times in the news the person who started a company gets fired by the company he started? (laughs) The person who is a big deal in some social group, the political winds change and they're no longer even accepted in the group that once celebrated and welcomed them. It is indeed only Christianity that gives you a relational center that can never be lost. And this is because of what Jesus promised in John 10. He said there that he is the good shepherd, that he lays down his life for the sheep. And then he said this in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Did you notice Jesus equated his hand with the father's hand? I and the father are one. So listen, true sheep of the father this morning. This is great news that you should find wonderful. God will not let you perish. He refuses to let any true humble follower of Jesus to be eternally lost. Years ago, I had the joy of baptizing a man who was about in his 70s. And when I first heard his testimony, he told me about how as a young man, he put his faith in Christ. But then for decades, he lived very sinfully and his wife continued to pray for him. And before he got baptized, he told me in the church this. He said, Josh, and he said this to our church, I tried to outrun God, but I didn't know he was a track star. (laughs) See, here's the good news of this passage. God will not let his sheep wander to their eternal destruction. Now, don't abuse the passage. This does not mean Christians should pursue sin. (laughs) 
or that we should stray on purpose to see how far the rod of the good shepherd can reach. Nor does it mean that we have no responsibility to persevere. It simply means that those who are indeed believers, God ensures that he will preserve them at the persevering grace that he works in them through the means of the community around them. But don't miss the verse that was verse 10 where we had our only command. Jesus talking to believers says, Believer, do not despise one of these little ones. Pause with me and think about whether or not we're guilty of this. If you do not care enough to pursue a wandering member of this congregation, you despise them. If you do not care enough to take an interest in the spiritual good of anybody else around you, you despise them. Therefore, you despise those whom God cherishes. You fail to pursue those whom God would never let go. The purpose of this paragraph, verses 10 through 14, is to challenge you, Christian, to take a responsibility and ownership that you do not despise even the little ones in your community. And now, verses 15 through 20, will show us how we do that. Verses 15 through 20 are meant to show us how we, as a community of faith, make sure we do not despise any in our midst. So now number two on your handout. The Christian community covenants to protect that relational center in meaningful relationships that will balance grace and truth for each one's eternal good. Now, verses 15 through 20 are actually steps that Jesus gives to make sure that his flock is protected through the loving relational care of members of that flock. So verse 15 is step one. If you have the bulletin, I'll give you all four steps. Step one. In a covenant community, the danger of even one member should lead to a confidential personal conversation. Look in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. We have to really break down all these words. First, I have to do something I try to not do in sermons too much. I have to get to the Greek just because it really is important in this one. The word against you is not in the original text. So it shows up in the ESV and the King James and the CSV. But the NASB, the NIV, and the NET all rightly omit it because it is not in the oldest and best manuscripts we have. Here's why that matters. I've known many Christians who read verse 15 and say, oh, I'm only supposed to care about somebody else's sin if it's against me personally. That is not what the Bible says. We're to take an interest in the spiritually endangering sin of any member of the community, whether or not it was done against you personally. So verse 15, we have to take an interest in every member of the community. And don't miss it's the community because he begins with, if your brother. So he's talking about brothers and sisters in the covenanted community. We care about each other's spirituality so much that if even one person is endangering themselves through sin, we go and talk to that one person. And we talk in a certain way because it says tell. It's the Greek word elenko. It means to try to win over It does not mean to try to score spiritual superiority points. (laughs) It means to plead with them for their good. The Bible actually tells us this many times. Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him, but if he repents, forgive him. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14, if anyone does not obey, verse 15, warn him as a brother. Can you write this reference down? Please write down James 5, 19 through 20. 
It's the clearest of all the others. My brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. So to bring back a wanderer is for the sake of his soul to restore his life. This is in the Old Testament as well. Luke 19, verse 17. Do not hate your brother. Rebuke him. If you fail to rebuke him, you hate him. Proverbs says this in 27, 6. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Those who care about the others in the community are willing to talk to them about what's happening. Notice verse 15 ends, though, by saying, between you and him alone. Generally speaking, this conversation needs to be private and confidential. Now, I've just observed as a pastor over the years, very few people are willing to have a difficult one-on-one conversation. And even the ones who are willing normally blow it before they have it because they tell everybody they're going to have it. (laughs) So it's no longer a confidential conversation. Now, there are some exceptions where you can't keep the conversation confidential. For example, sometimes it is right to get counsel from a pastor or an elder. Sometimes the conversation can't be private. For example, if a man is making sexually inappropriate advances to a woman, she should involve someone else to go rebuke that man on her behalf. Or, for example, sometimes, and this happened in a church I was pastoring, someone engages in sin that becomes publicly in the news. And so the matter is just out at this point. But generally speaking, we strive to keep it confidential. These are sins that are significant, they're known, they're dangerous, and they necessitate this kind of conversation out of love to preserve this wandering brother. Now step two, verse 16. If the one in danger will not listen, then a small number of others joins to ensure that the concern is legitimate. Now you'll notice each one of these verses begins with, if they will not listen. Here's why that's important. You would, we must give ample time and opportunity for that person to listen. And if they listen and they turn from their sin, that's the end of it. No one else ever has to know. It remains confidential. If and only if they refuse, then we move forward. And in step two, you add others. Look in verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The end of that verse, Jesus is invoking Old Testament testimonial law. And here's why he's invoking it. Those two or three witnesses are not witnesses to the sin. They come in to make sure that you, as the person who thinks this brother is in danger, are not wrong. In other words, they come in to make sure you're not making a mountain out of a molehill or that you're not incorrect in your assessment. The two or three are there to make sure that they certify your claim. They come in also with the hope that this brother will relent. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So the heartbeat of everybody is to restore. And again, ample time is given. But if this person will not turn from their sin, then Jesus tells us, go to step three. Here's step three. If the one in danger rejects these confidential measures, then the entire covenant community must be made aware. Look in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, 
tell it to the church. Why would the church need to know? Because they're a covenant community. Because we care about each strange sheep. If we don't care about each other, then there's no reason to tell anybody. But if we all care about each person's soul, and it tears us up to think about someone eternally strained, then we all have to know. And by the way, we all have to know, even if that person is avoiding the community right now, we still all have to know because we've all taken covenant ownership over one another. And soul-endangering repentance is something that we all have a stake in. But if they won't listen, then we go to step four. So step four on your hand up. If he refuses to listen to his covenant community, then the community can no longer affirm him in covenant. So look at the end of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, notice then that the church as a whole, as a covenant community, has had opportunity to appeal to this person. There's been opportunity given for them to try to go to that person collectively. Hey, you're, you're, you're one of us. What, what are you doing? This is horrible. This is not who you are. This is not how a Christian lives. This is going to destroy and ruin your soul. Turn from this. But if you won't even listen to the whole church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning that you can no longer affirm him as part of the covenant. Let me explain very clearly what this does not mean. It does not mean shunning, that you shun that person. As far as I know, shunning is still only for Mennonites and Twitter. (laughs) I think that's, that's where it works. But it's not for Christians. It also doesn't mean they can't come to church. We actually want them to still come to church. Based on 1 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11, there's only one thing it means. It means you don't let them partake in communion. Why not? Because communion is the time that the whole church reaffirms its covenant to the Lord and to one another. Part of why I think, frankly, we don't understand discipline very well is because we don't understand communion very well. People take communion and they have no idea whether or not they've committed to this local body. They have no stake in the spirituality of this local body. And so therefore, because community has been lessened, then none of this other stuff makes sense either. But communion actually is a time for the body to say, hey, I'm going to look out for your soul. You're going to look out for my soul because together we're looking to Jesus. So we're partnering at communion. Hey, we're holding hands together. I need you to watch me. You, you watch me too, and, and I'll watch you because without each other, this is not going to go well because we don't see sin in ourselves very well. So communion is, is the thing. Now, this doesn't mean the Roman Catholic understanding. Roman Catholic understanding is that if I withhold communion, I'm damning your soul eternally. No, that, that's not what, what we're doing as Christians. The church can't damn anybody's soul. We're just saying we can't affirm you. We affirmed you when you joined through baptism. Now we can't affirm you because you refuse to follow Jesus. Now, this whole time you might have been thinking, all right, Josh, but what sins require public discipline? Is there like a list of good sins and then bad sins? You know, how do I determine? Um, I'll just try to use a couple descriptions. The first, I think this one's obvious. The sin would have to be observable, right? Otherwise, none of these verses make any sense. Um, t- to make it very clear, that means you could never discipline over someone's motives. You could never say, I know you have a bad intention here. That's, that's not possible. You can only discipline over what's outward and observable, what's demonstrable. Second, we only discipline over somebody who's genuinely wandering 
That's why verses 10 through 14 are there. They're endangering their soul. They're wandering away from the truth. So if you're talking to someone that's fighting sin, that's not disciplinable. We're talking about those who are rejecting the means of grace. They're wandering away from the truth. This is why in Baptist history, the most commonly disciplined sin was a refusal to attend regularly. Because it's so observable. You're not here. You're not availing yourself to the means of grace. When we ask you to come, you, you won't come. That They became the most common. If you read the minutes of churches in the 1700s, it was the most commonly disciplined reason that someone was expelled from the community. Now, the third reason, and this is really the most important one, so it's outward, it's wandering, but the third and most important is it's unrepentant. Remember, each verse began with, if he listens, it, it's over. But if he won't listen, then you move on. So the, the issue is that the person is recalcitrant, they're obstinate, they're intransigent in their heart. Now, you give ample time on all of these. There's no rush here. If the person's willing to fight their sin at all, then great, we stop. But if they refuse, if they dig in their heels, then for the sake of their soul, we have to love them enough to say something hard. Now, Craig Blomberg gives a long quote here, and let me read it. In an age when churches in America can be sued for disciplining their members, unless procedures have been stated in written in, in written form and disseminated and explained to the whole congregation. It's imperative to think carefully about how to implement Jesus' instructions. He writes, many churches avoid the problem simply by disobeying Jesus and making no attempt to follow his principles. That's most churches in America, for sure. Application also proves difficult because our society, for the most part, is not made up of tightly knit communities like the pre-industrial world would have been. Today, church members who are disciplined often leave one congregation and just join another where no questions are asked. So unless we create intimate community with local churches and networks of accountability among different churches, how could we ever apply these verses effectively? Blomberg concludes, without this application, sin in the church will continue to compromise the unity and testimony of God's people. All right, now you're here this morning. You're reading the same living word that I am. Jesus says this very clearly, doesn't it? So why don't we do it? Why do so few churches do this? Let me give you a few guesses. First, human frailty. The same reason we struggle to obey many things. The second, though, and I think this one's very common, because we're afraid that then we'd have to take sin in our own life seriously. It's very difficult to go to somebody else if you know... But then if they start asking questions about me. So in in reality, unless the water level rises across the whole church, we can never obey what Jesus has called us to do. There's a third reason we don't do this, though, and it's relational loyalty over commitment to Jesus. We say, man, I've known this person forever. I held their kid when they were this age. I'm not going to challenge them. Let me tell you a true story. A pastor friend of mine in Michigan, godly pastor, large, healthy church. He's trying to teach his church this. In his church, there was a young man who came to know Jesus Christ. He, he became a follower of Jesus. He was saved. Then that young man led his dad to faith in Jesus Christ. Then about five or six years later, that young man started to, to live in an unrepentant, sexually immoral relationship that he would not turn from. The church went through all the steps They did everything right. They got to the final step. There's hundreds of people in the room. And the church had to bring up this young man to be removed from the body, to be removed from covenant. 
And they voted. And the man's father stood up and through tears said, I can't discipline my own son. He led me to Christ. Now the pastor wisely paused the meeting and went with the man and went out of the room. All the other church just stayed there. And over an hour or so, he went through all the passages we've gone through in Matthew where Jesus says, if you won't forsake father and mother, if you won't turn on loyal friends, you, you can't follow me. And they came back in with the father and they revoted, and the father voted to remove his own son from the covenant. And since then, the father has been appealing to his son to repent and follow Jesus. See, if we put earthly loyalty over loyalty to Christ, we are actually assisting in the condemnation that those who reject Christ will eternally inherit. In the end, the strength to obey only can come from the person we are drawing people to. So notice that verses 18 through 20 are actually about church discipline still. Look in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So often we don't want to see something evil in someone that we love and that we know very well. But if we won't, think of what that will do for them. Let me pause and look outside the church for for a second. Think of how many people in the world, politicians, very common among politicians, celebrities, they've been doing something awful for a long time, maybe sexually assaulting people, and their family knows about it, their staff knows about it, but nobody says anything about it until it blows open. See, the church should never be like that. The church has to be a place we are able to loose what must be loosed for the sake of their soul and the sake of God's glory. So now verses 19 through 20. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. These verses are abused so often it just breaks my heart. Very often people think verse 19 and 20 are a definition of a church. As if like this afternoon, my grocery cart hits your grocery cart in the Harris Teeter line and we're like, hey, it's a church, two or three are gathered. (laughs) Not what Jesus is talking about. Or we think it means, hey, if your numbers are really low, Jesus is still with you, which praise God he is, but that's not what he's talking about here. What are the two or three in context? Those who are carrying out these corrective steps. What Jesus is promising in verse 19 through 20 is I am with you in this very painful but necessary process. I will not leave you to do it in your own strength. I will supernaturally empower you to it. It's almost exactly what he does at the end of Matthew where he says, go make disciples and I will be with you till the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will be with us if we will obey him in this text. And he will give us strength that we didn't have. And in doing so, he will actually protect the relational center. Let me read one true story to you. Bob Thune wrote this. He writes, six years ago, our elders put Jack under church discipline. And last week, Jack thanked me for it. In Jack's case, his deception was the reason the church had to put him under discipline. On the surface, he was a sharp, committed church member. He was a medical student, leading and overseeing a small group in our church, but under the surface, he was hiding a serious problem with lust and alcohol. I still remember the meeting in my office where we confronted him 
with his peers, and we wrote on a whiteboard all the women he had slept with in that year. There were six, including one in his small group who was not even a Christian. Instead of sharing the gospel, he had shared her bed. Instead of inviting her to Christ, he had invited her to sin. And none of this came to light because of his admission, but because of hers. So our elders asked Jack to write a letter to the other covenant members of our church, bringing into light what he had been keeping in the dark. We shared his letter privately, not publicly, inviting his fellow members to surround him in prayer and accountability. And we laid out a redemptive plan for him with specific boundaries and expectations to help kill his sin. Bringing his deception into light was humbling, even humiliating. Jack had to tell the truth about who he really was. He had to face the disconnect between reality and pretense. But this is the toothy side of church membership. Jack presented himself as a spiritual leader. He had covenanted with other members to follow Christ, but he had lied persistently and willfully. And repentance for lying requires telling the truth to those whom you've deceived. A year later, Jack moved to another city, And he got involved in a local church there. And in a strong demonstration of integrity, Jack told his new pastor what had happened at his old church. The pastor called me, Bob writes, and I sent along, with Jack's permission, the letter that Jack had written to our church. And that pastor helped continue the journey of discipleship that Jack needed. And so six years later, on a recent Sunday, Jack showed up at our church. He was back in town for a short visit, and this time he brought along his family with his three delightful children. After the worship service, Jack purposefully sought me out in the foyer and looked me directly in the eye and said this. Thank you for, well, all of that six years ago. If I'm honest, there were moments that I hated you, (laughs) but I'm so thankful now. Thank you. Bob writes, these are the stories that don't get told, but they're real. Real people are helped and loved and strengthened when the church has the courage to obey Scripture. Biblical church discipline isn't punitive. It's beautifully redemptive. See, in the passage we're reading today, Jesus is actually telling us this to protect his sheep. Now, this morning you might be thinking, Josh, everything you've been talking about is making me really uncomfortable. (laughs) I came here on a Sunday morning to get inspired and then go to lunch. And you're talking about actual steps of following the Lord? Do you know why it's so hard for us to hear this? Because in America, church has become a spectator experience where a few people do something on stage and you can have a shallow, casual commitment that you enjoy it once a month. Brothers and sisters, that is not church. Church is something where you have meaningful relationships with other brothers and sisters who help you follow Jesus. As I said at the beginning of the pandemic, church is not a video you download and consume. It's a community you know and love. And without that community, you can't follow Christ. And I fear that some of our culture has been so sold a shallow, cheap imitation of that that now they fear the real thing. Robert Murray Machane feared it too. He was a pastor who served from 1835 to 1843 in Scotland. He lived a young life. But if you've ever read the Bible through in a year, it's probably because of what he wrote to his church to help them read the Bible through in a year. When he started off as a pastor, he didn't care much for church discipline. 
But as he grew, here's what he wrote. When I first entered the ministry among you, I was exceedingly ignorant of the importance of church discipline. I thought that my great and only work was to pray and preach. I thought that my time was too short, so I devoted all my time to other things. But when cases of discipline were brought before me and the elders, I regarded them with abhorrence. It was a duty I shrank from, and I may say it truly drove me from the ministry altogether. But it pleased God, who teaches his servants in another way than man teaches, to bless some of the cases of discipline and to manifest the undeniable conversion of the souls under our care. And from that hour, a new light broke in upon my mind. And I saw that if preaching is an ordinance of Christ, so is church discipline. I now feel very deeply persuaded that both are of God, that the two keys are committed to us by Christ, one of doctrine by which we unlock the treasures of the Bible and the other of discipline by which we open or shut the way to the sealing of the ordinances of the faith. Both are Christ's gift and neither is to be resigned without sin. So let me give you four quick principles that I think we as a church have to have if we're to ever carry this out. They're on the notes online. They're not on your bulletin. So if you want to write them quickly, here they are. Four principles for a manual before we can carry this out. Number one, we have to have an honest culture of confession and repentance must become normal. This week, I started reading a book by Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Christianity. It's very, very good so far. And then when I was looking up her name, I saw that Pastor J.D. Greer interviewed her at Summit Church uh, in April of this year. It's an excellent interview, really, really good. In her book and in the interview, she explains that as a Christian, she struggled with same-sex attraction her entire life. And she explains that she was so afraid that if she told anybody else in the church that she struggled with same-sex attraction, all of her Christian sisters would take a half step away from her. But then she realized by not giving her Christian sisters a chance to respond to her sin struggle, she had taken a half step away from them. See, what we found in our church up north um, on Wednesday nights, I would teach ACTS. We would pray adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and uh, supplication. So every second Wednesday, we would confess. And let me tell you, for a while, those were the lowest attended Wednesdays. And then I had to do something that was hard for me, but it was a necessary step of leadership. I had to confess my sin every Wednesday until we got used to it. So I would stand up and say, here's when I was impatient with my wife this week. Here's when I snapped at my kids this week. Here's how I've been trying to deal with that, but I still sin and I struggle and I need you to know about that sin struggle so that you can help me kill it. And then after about a year, the C became the most exciting Wednesday night of our cadence. Because people would split off all around the auditorium, five here, six here, four there, three there, with a different person each time, talking about the sin they're struggling with, and God started killing it. But unless you're able to do that, if we won't walk in the light, we won't have fellowship with one another, and we won't experience the cleansing that God does when we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive. But we have to be willing to talk. Number two is very similar, but we have to have a culture of intimate transparency and trust. Um, Let me just say again, and I'm not picking on you, it's our fault as American churches, pastors, we're the reason this has all gone south, but I just have to tell you the truth. You will never experience meaningful spiritual growth if you think church is something you drive into once a month. It just won't happen. 
You have to open yourself up to the intimacy of knowing people in a real way. Number three, our culture has to cross man-made social groupings. Here's what I mean by that at Emmanuel. I love that we can have Sunday school for different stages of life, but we have to shake it up a bit because we have to have a church in which someone who's retired sits with a college student and someone who's recently widowed sits with someone who's newly engaged and someone who's divorced sits with someone who just had their first child because God actually made us in such a way that we both need one another. We need those on the other step of walking with God to be able to say, hey man, I've I've been there and I can kind of help you navigate that. And we need those with that new, fresh excitement to remind us God still has a purpose for us. And as long as Sunday school is only peers, we'll never have that. So we have to shake that up occasionally. And because we need to know each other meaningfully, I do think we need to have home gatherings as a somewhat regular rhythm in our church. I would love eight to ten times a year where you go to homes geographically, not based on stage of life, (laughs) but based on people you can share life with, so that we can have a culture where we know each other well enough to say, brother, what's going on here? And we've given each other that right. Fourth and finally, this one's sort of obvious, but I think it needs to be said out loud. Our relationships must be Christian. (laughs) We should be able to talk to each other about Jesus and our life with him and what it means to follow him and what it means to struggle with him. Now, I began by telling you about that pool across the street that has the red boundary around it. But do you know why we can be inside the gates? It's because Jesus was crucified outside the city gates. They took the one who was completely pure and innocent and they marched him outside of the walls of Jerusalem and put him on the cross so that he could bear our sin eternally away. And do you know why he did that? So that one day we could be in the walls of the new Jerusalem, heaven, forever. You see, if you don't realize how wonderful it is to be within, don't forget who went out so that you could come in. This passage tells us about how we can live in community, but that community was made possible because the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, and then he rose it up again so that the sheep could be protected and preserved forever. So let's pray and praise to our good shepherd. Dear God, we live in a day where we are often told how narrow-minded Christians are, And surely there are people who claim Christ that have really been terrible in this area. So let us learn when we are rightly criticized. But Lord, the the reality is that covenant is the sweetest thing. And Lord, I think about friends and brothers and sisters from church history that they were just so excited whenever they were able to be together and worship. They just couldn't believe that they would have brothers and sisters in Jesus. Remind us, Lord, that we have never lost anything or anyone that will not be given a hundredfold in the gift that Jesus has given us with one another. Remind us that to have a brother who actually cares about you is infinitely better than having a thousand social media friends who don't even know you. So may we learn something about depth of community in a highly consumeristic, artificial, 
age of individualism. May we learn that a community is based on covenant. We've covenanted together with one another because Jesus has earned what we could never buy. He went outside the wall so that our sins could be taken outside and dealt with. And we bear them no more, praise the Lord. I pray someone today, maybe who doesn't know how all this works, that they would realize that they can look to Jesus Christ and he will take away all of their shame, all of their guilt, and not only will he forgive them, he'll give them a new family. But those of us who are in the family, we have to be honest about some things. We won't talk to each other because of our frailty, sometimes because of our own sin in our own life, because we know we're not right to talk to somebody else. Sometimes we won't talk to one another, Lord, because we just don't want to be inconvenienced like that. We want to keep our relationships on the surface level because if they get too transparent, they're vulnerable. But Lord, give us the humility to have the vulnerability we need so that we can be faithful to this passage and protect one another from eternal wandering. But Lord, thank you that Jesus said he is with us. And ultimately, we know that the one who will bring back his sheep is the good shepherd. And that we know the Father will let none who are truly his perish. Thank you for that eternal security, God. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com. R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.